Thank you very, very much. I'm, I'm so grateful for the invitation to be with you today and to receive this award, um, which so many of my friends and recipients that I admire have received, and especially from an institution that I admire so much. To have it awarded on the same day that also your president uh, is receiving it, Dr. McLean, whose visionary leadership uh, has historically developed Thomas Aquinas College, and also on the occasion when you're welcoming your new president-elect, uh, Dr. O'Reilly, uh, as, as your new president, who's already contributed uh, so much uh, to the life of Thomas Aquinas College. Fifty years ago, my wife and I were sitting where you are today. Uh, we had just graduated from a Catholic university from a great books program. And although our experience was in many ways different than your experience, uh, we have always felt close to Thomas Aquinas College. And so we're very glad to be with you today. Uh, as Dr. McLean has indicated, I've had a varied a career in government and academia, in business, charity, civil society. But all during this time, I want to tell you, there has not been any educational experience I've had that served me better than the multi-year study of the great books. Uh, time and again, I've turned to them for wisdom, for insight, and most importantly, to better understand uh, the significance of current events. So let no one tell you that your college experience here uh, is not relevant. Uh, throughout my life, I have found it to be the most relevant education I've received. Now, the world will tell you what is most important is what you have. Uh, but you know from your time here that what is most important is who you are. Because whatever, wherever you go, whatever you do, the most valuable value proposition that you bring to any situation is you. Now, of course, professional and technical skills are important. But what is most important is your judgment, your wisdom, your compassion, and your integrity. Advances in artificial intelligence are going to continue, and they're going to make great changes in the work environment. But artificial intelligence will never, ever replace what is in your heart and your soul. We commonly refer to studies uh, like that here at Thomas Aquinas College as a great books program. But here, as you know, it is much more than that. I think of it as an encounter with the genius of the West. That genius has taken many forms in many different disciplines. And its diversity is like nothing else the world has seen. And we may look at this from many different perspectives. But in a fundamental sense, it is the working out through history of the encounter between Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome. And as you well know, that encounter reached a certain unity during the 12th and 13th centuries. But even more fundamentally, 
we may see this in the context of salvation history as the encounter of that genius with the reality of the incarnation. And as you know, that process continues. And here at Thomas Aquinas College, you have been a part of it. Thomas Aquinas College has been a great gift to you, made possible by the sacrifices of your families, the dedication of the faculty, and the vision of those who built and now sustain this beautiful campus and its academic program. Yet the value of any gift depends upon how it is received. And you have not only embraced this gift, you have worked hard to develop it. And today, all of us are proud of what you have accomplished. And now as you graduate, with this gift comes the opportunity for you to seize a great task. The task is one that I think you've already begun here. It is what I would call the vocation to the Catholic intellectual life. In addition to what the Lord may be calling you to do, for example, a vocation to the priesthood or the religious life, or to marriage and family life, you now have the opportunity to continue a life of learning in a special Catholic way. We often speak of our church as a pilgrim church, and this idea reflects the reality that our life of Catholic faith is not something we ever possess once and for all, but rather it is something toward which we continually strive, and not only on our own, but as part of a living community. We are all on a life's journey, and for some of us, an intellectual pilgrimage is an important part of that journey. You are here today because in the past four years you have made a serious commitment to the scholarly life, a life of intellectual curiosity, critical thinking, and discipline. And it is hoped that this work has not exhausted your wonder at the world which the Lord has given us and the human drama that is part of our history in it. The intellectual life is very much a part of the identity of many of those who have taken up the religious life, as we know, in the Benedictines, in the Dominicans, for example. Their communities embody a culture of Catholic learning, and this legacy is part of the great patrimony of our church. But there is no reason why Catholic laymen and Catholic laywomen should not also embrace a life of learning and create for themselves and their families a culture of learning. You have been given an opportunity here at Thomas Aquinas College that few other Catholics in the world have been given. You have begun an intellectual pilgrimage grounded in some of the greatest works of Christianity, the classic texts of our faith, and with a unique scholarly community Today should mark a continuation, not an ending, of this chapter of your life. Today our church needs more of us, especially laymen and laywomen, to take up the special tasks of defending the truths of our faith. Certainly there are offices in the church that institutionally are charged with doing so, such as the bishop, theologians, academic faculties. They all have a responsibility for safeguarding 
and communicating the truths of our faith. But there is no reason why a new generation of laymen and women who do not hold these positions should nonetheless take up this task and share in this mission, and some might even say the times demand it today. Look closely at the scholar for whom this college is named. St. Thomas Aquinas is rightly celebrated as the outstanding model of the Catholic intellectual life. He truly embodies this vocation, which is to say a life caught up in the love of learning and the desire for God. He lived a life of uncompromising and dispassionate discipline in the search for truth. And he complemented that discipline with a serene confidence, humility, and charity in its application. He showed us that the Catholic intellectual life has a sacred call, and in response to it, he or she must practice the virtues of the Catholic life, and especially those at the center, the virtues of charity and humility. It is a vocation that we could say begins with these words of St. Thomas. All that is true by whomsoever it is said has its origin in the Holy Spirit. Thus we begin in a spirit of humility, both as to what we may learn from others and what we may also contribute. The Catholic intellectual does not stand alone. He or she is always a member of a community that extends through time and that has been entrusted with understanding and preserving a great inheritance. It is an inheritance which arises from the very heart of the church and like the mission of the church itself is intended to bring the reality of the incarnation ever more deeply into the life of the intellect and therefore into the life of the believer. During your studies, the greatest book you have opened here is you. And it is in this book that the Lord has been writing during your time here. No study program, no matter how great, can substitute what he has written in your heart. St. Thomas lived in an age when reading and study was closely associated with prayer. The familiar adage of the time was this, you should apply yourself to prayer or to reading. At times you speak with God, at times he speaks with you. The vocation of the Catholic intellectual life goes beyond learning the Christian classics. It's not about seeking knowledge for the sake of knowledge or for the sake of power. Instead, it is about entrusting oneself to the spirit of truth. I have suggested that it is a vocation that proceeds from the inseparable connection between the love of learning and the desire for God. But ultimately, this vocation moves us beyond this to a new unity of the love of learning and the love of God. It sets our spirit in the one direction that Pope John Paul II told us is the only direction for our intellect, will, 
and heart. And that direction is toward Christ. Thus, a disciplined life of prayer, as well as that of reading sacred scripture, as are irreplaceable elements of an authentic Catholic intellectual life. Here as well, St. Thomas serves as our sure guide to the sum and sub summit of Catholic intellectual life. There is a story told about him, perhaps some of you are, know of it already, that as his death was approaching, he heard the Lord say, you have spoken well of me, Thomas. What reward would you like? To which he replied, nothing but you, Lord. It has been said that not every age is as good as another. But there is one age that for us surpasses them all. And that one is our own, our own. I need not tell you the challenges which our society presents to those who would faithfully follow Jesus Christ. We know them all too well, and some of the most painful examples of those challenges are right here in California, where agents of the cancel culture have defaced our churches and have torn down statues of saints such as Junipero Serra. Contemporary culture challenges every believer, but few believers are better prepared to respond to these challenges than are you, than are you. Because in order to defend a culture from those who would cancel it, you first must know it. And few know the achievement of Western genius and the culture which it has produced better than you. Culture is a shorthand way of speaking about what we mean by the way of life of a people, their ideas, their aspirations, their spiritual values, what they have sacrificed over generations to achieve and why they have done so. Those who take up the vocation of the Catholic intellectual life have a special responsibility in this regard. The Thomistic scholar Etienne Gilson often recounted his experience as a soldier in the First World War in the French Army, and especially the time when a dying French soldier on the battlefield begged him to hear his confession. Because of these types of experiences, Gilson could have easily joined those who, disillusioned with the Great War, became members of the so-called Lost Generation. Instead, Gilson and other Catholic philosophers went in a different direction. They took up the challenge presented by Pope Leo XIII in Eterni Patris. They agreed with this great Pope on the importance of St. Thomas Aquinas, and they led a rebirth into mystic studies. Undoubtedly at the time, there were many who questioned the relevance of this new attention to medieval philosophy. Yet, as we know, no work could have been more relevant to the crisis facing Western civilization than the recovery of the great intellectual genius 
and spirituality of our Catholic faith. These scholars lived in an intellectual culture which since the Enlightenment had put the God of Christianity on trial and which had found his church guilty time and time again of falsehood. Rousseau, Voltaire, Diderot, the geniuses of the French Enlightenment positioned their attack on Christianity as a debate between reason and superstition. They were astute enough in championing the age of reason to avoid directly confronting the sublime genius of Christian reason found in the work of the angelic doctor. Their strategy was a cowardly one, but very effective. Simply ignore the work of St. Thomas and move on. But their age of reason was only a halfway point, as I think you know. By relying upon an intelligible universe and a rational creator, the age of reason ended up pointing the 19th century in one of two directions. Once again, toward the rational faith of Christianity, or alternatively, toward the new anti-faith of atheism. Pope Leo XIII saw the choice more clearly than many others, and he sought to build a new confidence in Christian philosophy. First, by emphasizing the importance of St. Thomas in Attorney Patris, and then second, by showing the relevance of such reasoning to finding solutions of the social crisis of the day in his great economic encyclical, Rerum Novarum. But by the time, but by this time, the philosophical turn toward atheism was well underway. The new attack on Christianity was no longer presented as a confrontation between reason and superstition. Instead, Christianity was said to have created something even more sinister. It was said to have created an entirely false consciousness in the mind of the believer. The fathers of modern atheism, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, each in their own way sought to dismantle what they said was the false consciousness of Christianity, whether in the area of history and economics or autonomy and human freedom or psychology and science. They sought to wake up society with a new narrative of reality. The problem for them was not that people had wrong ideas that needed to be corrected, but that they have a totally false way of looking at reality that has to be replaced. That is what they mean when they write that Christianity is the opium of the people, or a slave religion, or for Freud, a mental illness and neurosis. And it is precisely this false consciousness that prevents society from obtaining economic justice, personal freedom, and individual happiness. So you may judge for yourself the extent to which this type of thinking has seeped into the groundwater of American culture. But to the extent that it has, 
More of our fellow citizens live lives as though God does not exist. They live their lives in a closed-in, materialistic world, a world with no transcendent horizon. While much is new here, one thing hasn't changed. Being newly woke means feeling no need to climb the heights of Christian philosophy with St. Thomas Aquinas, since that philosophy only has meaning within the false consciousness of Christianity. It seems to me that we once again are confronted with the problem that was described by Plato in his allegory of the cave, but this time we have a modern twist. We have people locked in the cave of a materialistic world, unable or unwilling to turn to the light. They see only the shadows of a secular culture passing in front of them, and they call it reality. And this reality is increasingly one of indifference, isolation, and despair. So then how are we to encourage people to escape their cave and turn and face the light? I think our problem is even more difficult than Plato's. Because in the Republic, as you all remember, Plato is in a dialogue with people for whom the soul, the good, the true, the right, and the beautiful have meaning, have meaning. His readers contemplate an intelligible world with truths that can be discovered by human reason. Not so today. Many of those around us do not share these ideas, nor do they have confidence in the intelligibility of the world and in the reliability of human reason. So now what is to be done? How are we to encourage people to turn away from the shadows of doubt and suspicion and to step out into the light of Christian faith? St. John Paul II spoke directly to this problem throughout his pontificate. And listen to what he says in his very first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis. The church's fundamental function in every age, and particularly in our age, is to direct man's gaze, to point the awareness and experience of the whole of humanity toward the mystery of God, to help all men and women to be familiar with the profundity of the redemption taking place in Christ. It seems to me that to, quote, direct man's gaze to the redemption taking place now in the world is to supplement the reason of philosophy and theology with the experience of God acting in the lives of believers. It is to point the way to the redemption that is happening today in the concrete lives of us, you and I, as Christians. In other words, what it means to us to have Christ now redeeming our lives. Or as St. Peter wrote, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for the reason for your hope.
the witness of redemption, is the great drama of Christianity in every age. In this sense, we may say even that our age is a Christian age, that every age is a Christian age. And this is true because in every age, the Lord is alive and acting in the lives of his followers. In this way, every age is a Christian age because every age is an age of Christian witness. And your age will be so because of your witness. Here the Catholic intellectual life finds its greatest responsibility, the responsibility of serving divine truth through a life of Christian witness. St. John Paul II tells us, being responsible for that truth also means loving it and seeking the most exact understanding of it in order to bring it closer to ourselves. Etienne Gelson once said of St. Thomas Aquinas that wisdom to him was not philosophy. It was not theology. In its perfect form, witness was Christ. If you commit your lives to seeking wisdom through this witness, as did St. Thomas, then you will be those witnesses that our times require and that the Lord is calling you to be. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.